It was an incredible week uh, of VBS. We were so grateful for, while it was hot weather, to be able to have just some real dry uh, times where we could have the kids outside. And what a great week it was. Under the heading uh, of uh, the Big Apple Adventure, we transported the kids, if you will, uh, to New York City with all of the noises and all of the clamor of that incredible metropolis and to learn about how uh, faith connects uh, to life and uh, The parents and the leaders did an awesome job at doing that, and I think if you had any children a part of the uh, a part of the VBS time, you've no doubt heard how it has impacted your life. Now I know every time, and they they toned it down a bit. Every year VBS comes around, and sometimes I've had to preach in a jungle uh, on the week of VBS. And I got to tell you, while it's really toned down this time with the skyscrapers, the one thing that I don't like is this traffic light. And I thought when I saw it at first. This was a uh, something you guys were going to help me to know when my sermon was done, that while the light's green, everything's going well, and then when you got started getting bored, it would turn to yellow, and then someone in the back, one of the ushers, when I started to go overtime, this would just turn red. So it didn't happen in the first service, but if I see it going, I just want you to know I'm colorblind, so I don't know... What's happening there? But I do want to just have us take a couple moments and open up God's Word. If you would take a Bible in your hands, if you don't have one this morning, there's a pew Bible in front of you, and you can find our passage on page 441. We've been in the book of Psalms uh, this, uh, this summer, looking at the book of Psalms, and uh, under the heading of what we've called Snapshots, Psalms for all situations. And I pardon my uh, voice, like it sounds like it's going through puberty. I'm suffering through a cold today, and, uh, and just pray that I can get through one more service of talking, and then uh, quiet down to my wife's uh, great joy to be quiet for the rest of the day uh, during our times. But I want to uh, focus in on Psalm 127 this morning. It's an incredible psalm. It's a psalm that, that many have probably heard parts of in their life. And I want us to go ahead and just read Read that, and I'm going to ask as you turn there. It's our it's our tradition to honor God's word by standing up for it as we read the word of God. I'm going to ask God's blessing on our time, and then jump right into the text. This is what the Bible says, what the Lord says to us in Psalm 127. It says, "Unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain." In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants uh, grants sleep to those he loves. Sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. Let's pray. Father God, again we come to you signifying our dependence. And we come to a passage that reminds us that we cannot do anything without you, Lord, unless you build the house, unless you watch the city, unless you are in our lives, all that we do will be done in vain. So Lord, I pray today that if there's anything that any of us walk away from is our need for you. Lord, we're going to put our attention to the issue of raising children, to building of a home, to the issue of parenting. And Lord, I pray that every family that's represented here today would welcome, would ask, would seek for you to be number one in each of the families here. Father, because we know that when you're involved, we know that you will make all things right. 
and you will lead us to a place of great blessing. So Lord, I pray that we'll take these words to heart and that we'll apply them to our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. We learned about this week being a part of an adventure. And as I began to put my message together, I thought, what, what greater adventure is there in life than that of parenting? As you think about adventure, I, I wanted to get a proper definition because sometimes we use words like adventure and we don't know exactly what those words mean. And I went to the dictionary and I found out that adventure is defined as an exciting or unusual experience. It may also be a bold or risky undertaking with an uncertain outcome. Let me say that again. An adventure is defined as an exciting or unusual experience that may also be a bold, risky undertaking with an uncertain outcome. Now, there's something innate in all of us that we enjoy adventure. We love to see adventure on the movie screen and on our TVs. We love to read about adventure in our books. Some of the greatest stories that are known to man involve great adventures that man has been a part of. We'll even find ourselves standing in long lines for hours to be on a ride that will give the thrill of an adventure for 60 seconds at an amusement park. We love the idea of adventure, the unknown, the thrill of ecstasy that comes over us being a part of something that takes us to the very edges of who we are so that we can come back and speak of the great joy we had in participating in it. Growing up in Hinkley, just west of here, I grew up uh, just outside of town, and out my front door I could see the small little Hinkley Airport, which really isn't known for anything but skydiving. And I could remember for as long as I've been around seeing skydivers uh, jump and, and enjoy the thrill of the adventure of, of, if you will, diving through the sky. We live so close to the airport that when they were about to jump out on a quiet day, you could hear the first primal screams of the people jumping out of the airplanes. Every once in a while I would go and I would, I would go and, and watch them land because I could see them and watch all that they were doing in the air. But every once in a while I would stop by the airport and watch them and the people would come down and they were so excited. They were screaming with joy of just how awesome it was to be a part of that experience. And that's about as close as your pastor's going to get to skydiving. But they loved it, and they would come, and there would be all kinds of family and friends and, fr- and people around them that were there to receive them back, and, and just the, the stories they would tell of the great fun that they had on their adventure. But not all adventures turn out well. I was watching Fox News this week, and, and I heard my last name. My last name is Badal, and I don't hear my name very often on the news. America's Most Wanted a couple times, but other than that, not many times, and and I heard about a man, I don't believe he's a relative, he's a 20-something young man from uh, California, Northern California, named Ramimi Badal. And uh, he was with a group of friends, and they were at Yosemite uh, Forest this last, uh, last week. And they were on an adventure weekend with their church. 
and wanting to have a, a picture that would speak of their adventure uh, at a place where the groups could take pictures, they said, we want to climb to that rocky hill above the raging waters because we want to get a picture that says how adventurous things were. And so Ramini and two of his friends uh, made a decision that they were going to cross the moving water and to climb the rocks to be able to get this picture. And what happened was something that we would never think would ever take place. They were caught up in the water, and after three or four minutes of people desperately trying to save them, they lost their lives, falling 300 feet to their death in a waterfall. Sometimes adventures don't turn out that well. And that's what's so great about adventures. Because if we knew the outcome, then it wouldn't be an adventure at all. But sadly, some end up so terrible that we never want to encounter anything like that again. As I look at adventure in this world, there is something that comes to mind with this definition that brings me back to the issue of parenting. You see, parenting is exciting. Parenting is exciting because the baby's coming. And if you've had a child, you know what it's like. You hear the baby's coming and you start preparing for it. And I remember uh, with our first of three boys that we have, remembering all the excitement, buying the baby stuff and going and getting the crib and the changing table and all that stuff. And there's excitement and having the showers and all of that. And that excitement then moves to a boldness because I remember as a first-time, soon-to-be first-time parent, the confident words that came out. Well, I'm not going to parent like my parents did. They had it all messed up. I'm going to do it the right way. And if you know, most of the boldest people who give the boldest statements about parenting aren't parents yet. Have you noticed that? Because kids humble you. They humble you. They make you feel uh, not so bold. Now, It moves to the unusual according to the adventure definition because the most unusual things have happened ever since I've been a parent. I never thought I would hear my beautiful wife utter the words, don't you dare throw up on me. That's just something you don't hear, okay? I never thought I would hear, and I don't mean to be crass, but I never thought I would hear the words when we had people over for dinner, the words from the bathroom, will someone come and wipe me? Parenting is unusual. I take it by your laughter, you've been there. Parenting is an unusual thing that many times we're, we're not all that ready for. But you know what? Parenting's risky as well, according to that definition. Because we're dealing with real people. This isn't a pet. This isn't some uh, possession that we have that uh, maybe sits in our garage or, or that we bring out of everywhere. This is something day in and day out at every moment in time, especially when they're young, we're constantly worrying about the issues that may befall our children. It's risky. And on top of that, it's completely uncertain. We have no idea how things are going to turn out. Now, I would add, as I speak on the issue of parenting, I am a novice at it. And so please uh, hear me that I am receiving from what God's Word has to say to me as a parent of an 8-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 3-year-old. And by no means do I see myself as an expert. There are many great people in this midst that could preach far greater sermons on parenting than I could. But that's why I'm so glad for God's Word, because the writer of this psalm, Psalm 127, is a man named Solomon. Queen Sheba said of Solomon that he was the wisest and one of the greatest men of all of time. 
The Bible says he was the wisest of all men because he asked the Lord instead of riches and honor and glory that wisdom would be given to him. And so Solomon writes to us and he says that we need to make family and make our home something incredibly special. Now this psalm was a song. A lot of psalms are songs that are sung. This was sung by the family. And it was sung usually as they ascended ascended up to uh, Jerusalem. And they would come up to the city of Jerusalem to give their yearly sacrifice. And they would sing these words as a song, as a reminder to the family to remember that God has got to be in it. And so from this text, with the short time that I have, I won't take a lot of our time this morning, I want to look at three things very quickly this morning. Because if we want to be successful, if we want to be victorious in this thing called parenting and raising a family, there are three things that we need to be aware of that Solomon tells us. The first one is, don't overestimate the part that you play. Don't overestimate the part that you play. You can follow along in the sermon notes that are in the bulletin and go ahead and just write those in. Don't overestimate it. You see, as parents, we think that it's all on us. If we don't do the parenting, if we don't do uh, the working, if we don't take care of all of the circumstances, then our families are going to fall apart. But notice what the text says this morning. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, its builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard in vain. We need to understand that God is supposed to be in our families. God is supposed to be in the decisions that we make and that we don't have to put all the pressure on ourselves, but we can give it to God. And we can say, God, I can only do what a human being can do as a father, as a husband. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to give it to you and say, Lord, I'm gonna be the best husband, the best father I can be, but all the things that I can't have any control over, they're yours. I'm giving them to you. I'm going to release them to you because I can't deal with all of that stuff. There's only a certain amount of stuff that I'm able to deal with. Now, why would God want us to do that? There's a couple reasons why God wants us to give our families and our lives over to him. Before I I share that, I want to share a, uh, a word from Benjamin Franklin that he shared with our Continental Congress during the Revolutionary War that reminds us of our need for God. He says, do we imagine that we no longer need God's assistance? The longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of men, and without his ongoing aid, we shall proceed in this political building no better than the builders of the Tower of Babel. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? They were building a tower that would reach the heavens and that they would meet God in that. And God says, but you're not building it with me involved. You haven't asked me about it. You haven't sought my wisdom. And God said, because of that, I'm going to confuse your language. You're not going to be able to speak the same language anymore. And what happened to that tower? It ended incomplete. The labors labored in vain. And here Benjamin Franklin says to a young nation, he says, if we think as a nation we can do this on our own, we're mistaken. And it moves down to the home as well. If you think that you can build your family without God, you are sadly mistaken this morning. And the reason is, is threefold. Number one, because God planned the family. God planned it. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. It's not hard to find if you're new to the Bible. Genesis chapter uh, 2 is where we're going to be at. So keep your hand in the book of Psalms for a moment. 
And we want to hear about the start of this family because it's God who planned it. And in Genesis chapter 2, verses 18 through 20, uh, through 20, we see the start of the family. Now notice what takes place. The Lord says in, in verse 18, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord, had, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the beasts of the field and all the birds of the air. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever name the, the man called each living creature, that was his name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. In the garden, this is what's taking place. God says to Adam, okay, we got all these animals. We need to name them. And so here comes this big gray animal with this big long snout and sitting there and he's clumming in and, and Adam looks at him and says, elephant. And then here comes this uh, large animal and he goes, moo. And he says, well, because he says, moo, we're going to call him cow. And he names him cow. And then the snakes come by. You're going to be a snake. And names all of these different animals. And what God is doing isn't just getting the animals named, but he's wanting to show Adam that he was created for a relationship. And what happens is, and, and the text makes it clear later on, that what's taking place is there's almost as if an emptiness that Adam is feeling. And God says it's not good for man to be alone. And so God had it planned for man to live in community with a group of people. Now notice what it says. He goes on from planning it to providing it. Notice what he says just beyond that text there. Since no suitable helper was found, the Lord caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. And it says, the man and woman were both naked and they felt no shame. So here God takes him and he puts him into a sleep and he wakes up and this creature is brought before him. And literally in the Hebrew, the language that Moses is writing this in, the language literally speaks of the following. When he sees Eve, he says, hot diggity dog. That's what he's saying. This is bone of my bone, flesh. She's mine. This is what I've been looking for. This is what I've been wanting. And so God provides community. Now notice that when God provided community, he didn't say, okay, you two, you're just going to just hang out and you're going to be perpetually just dating one another and just loving on one another and nothing's going to take place. No, the command that God gives to Adam and Eve is not to start a garden together, not to join and start reading books together. His job that he gives them is to be fruitful and multiply. Why? Because God intended for us as human beings to be a part of a family. He knew that was our need. He knows that by ourselves it is not good. And so he provides the ability for a husband and a wife to begin to procreate and to have children. Because in having children, as Solomon tells us, having a family is a blessing and reward from God. But notice that he doesn't just plan it and provide it, but he protects it. Do you know that the oldest institution in the world is the family? Do you know it's thousands of years old? Have you ever thought that the family spans all geographical barriers? 
Now, there are things here in America that we love that Chinese don't like, that Africans don't like. But you go to China, you go to the far reaches of Africa, and you'll see what? Families. Now, think of the time that has passed with all of technology and all of that. And way back in the olden days, way back before even Christ, you had families, moms and dads and children, grandparents, aunts and uncles. As long as we know of civilization, it has been there. Now, you could say, well, that's just... You know, it's just got a good run going for it. Or because God instituted it, he's protecting it so that we will enjoy the blessings. Adam and Eve had children, just as Amanda and Timbadal are having children. And the same things that were commanded to Adam and Eve have been commanded to you as moms and dads. Nothing's changed. And you know what? The amazing thing is about it is God is continually still blessing the family. Now, here's the thing. Throughout all the generations, and even in our generation today, the family is under attack. And there are things that, and there are enemies towards our family and towards our children. The world, it seems, at times just wants to destroy this wonderful thing God has given, but I believe that God will protect it even to the end. God loves the family, and he's given it to us as a blessing. But we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we don't think that it's all on us. Because God planned it and he provided for it and he protects it. We need to give our, our, our families and our children to God. Listen to this uh, article that I found last year in Christianity Today magazine called The Myth of the Perfect Parent. More than any other generation, today's parents are worried sick that they will mess up their children's lives. We must assume then that there is serious error in our beliefs about parenting. We have made too much of ourselves and far too little about God. Reflecting our sinful bent to see ourselves as more essential and in control than God is and than when we really are. The reflex then is to judge ourselves by our children and to judge others by theirs. The article continues, the question we must ask about parenting must be reframed. We need to quit asking, am I, fa- or am I uh, successfully parenting today? Instead, we must ask, am I parenting faithfully? You see, faithfulness, the article says, after all, is God's highest requirement for us. It is likely that we are asking the wrong question as parents. We're so focused in on ourselves and our need for success and the success of our children that we have come to view parenting as a performance test. While the author doesn't quote this verse unless the Lord builds it, the builders build in vain. You can hear the echoes of it in the conclusion. This is the conclusion of the article. We are not sovereign over our children. Only God is. Children are not tomatoes to stake out or mules to train, nor are they numbers to plug into an equation. They are full human beings who are fearfully and wonderfully made. Parenting, therefore, is like all tasks under the sun. It is intended to be an endeavor of love, risk, perseverance, and above all, faith. Because parenting is faith rather than a formula, grace rather than guarantees, steadfastness rather than success that bridges the gap between our own parenting efforts and what, by God's grace, our children grow up to become. The first thing I want you to pull from this message is the following. God has more at stake, has invested more time and energy into your family than you ever will. Give him the space that he asked for. And allow him to be a part of your family. Number two, 
Solomon goes on in Psalm 127, and he reminds us as family members to not overwork at our jobs. Now, some of you are saying, hallelujah, I'm going to go tomorrow, and I'm going to say, boss, I don't have to work. The preacher told me at my church I don't have to work too hard that I shouldn't overwork. Well, that's not what I mean. We just need to be careful we don't overdo it. You see, as family members, especially as parents, we find ourselves thinking that we've got to take care of all these things, we've got to provide for the family, and, and that means doing certain things at work. But Solomon says in our text that the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stand guard, and he says, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for the food you eat. Now, what Solomon isn't saying is that we shouldn't work hard. God gave us work. He gave us work because, I don't know about you, but if you've spent any time on vacation, you know vacations get boring after a while, right? After a while, it's like, okay, I've sat around long enough. I've goofed around long enough. Now it's time for me to get back into the swing of things, to get back to work. We all love summer vacation when the kids are out of school, but right about now, we're ready for them to do what? To go back. And there's a reason, because we're not geared for vacation for long periods of time. We're geared to work, to use our minds, to use our bodies in that way. And Solomon reminds us, he says, be careful, parents and people, that you don't kill yourself for that next great promotion. And the reason why is he says, give it over to God, because you can't worry about your job enough that God won't meet the need. Now notice what he says. When we give our, rela- or our, our relationship to work and, and our engagement at work to God, it protects us against two things. Write these down in your outline. First of all, unhealthy ambition. It's not wrong to desire to do a good job at work, but some of you right now are pursuing a dream, a position, a promotion, and you'll do everything that you have to to get that thing done. Maybe there's a certain contract that you're working on and you will work hours, late hours, and you'll tell your kids and and everybody in your family, hey, it's too important that I get this certain account and I won't get uh, it unless I give up all of my life to be able to accomplish it. Maybe you're saying, well, you've got good intentions. I want to get more money so I can give my kids greater things. What Solomon says is, hey, when you pursue unhealthy ambition in your job, you're working in vain. But there's a flip side to that. And it's not just unhealthy ambition, but you see next that it's unproductive anxiety. And there's a flip side. Because some of us are worried about that promotion. Other ones of us are worried about losing our job or losing a certain amount of pay, especially now in this recession. And some of you find yourself up late at night either working your tail off or sitting there wondering if you have a job there for you on Monday. And I understand that. And I can understand that, and, my, and our church knows this, because I'm not just a pastor, but I'm also a businessman, and I can recognize the ambition and the anxiety that comes in running a business in an economic downturn. And so what, what, what Solomon says is, he says, hey, because of that, when you work for yourself, you're going to work your tail off, rise early, stay up late, and you're going to toil for the food that you eat. But notice what he says. When we give it to God, And we give our job, when we go in on Monday morning, we say, God, it's all yours. The book of Deuteronomy says that God is the one who works in us to produce wealth. Have you ever thought that God could take away our health? He could take away our cognitive skills that enable us to do that work at that that workplace? God could take all that away, but he's given us, he's blessed us with that ability to do the jobs that we have. 
And as a result of that, we need to go into work each day and say, Lord, I'm not going to sacrifice my family for this job, but I'm going to do the best job I can, and I'm going to leave it to you. And when you do that, when you do that, notice what God does. He gives an unbelievable dose, and I'm not trying to be funny, but of ambient. Notice what the text says. It says, he gives sleep to those he loves. Ambien is the great sleep drug uh, on the pharmaceutical market right now. And some of you are having to take pills to be able to take care of your sleeplessness, either because you've got to work all the hours of the day or because you're worried about your job. And I would tell you, when you give your life and your job over to God, you'll be sleeping like a baby. Because God is the one who will take control of your life. He's the one that will take care of your needs. And we've seen that in our church. We have a lot of people right now who are out of work. And can I tell you something? Even though it's been difficult for them, we've heard testimony after testimony of people that have been out of work for years who still have clothes on their back, who still have shelter over their heads, who still have food to eat. And God, and they will say it to you, God has been so good to them. When you've got God on your side, God will meet you in your hour of need. Solomon says, don't work in vain. Give it to God and focus on your family, and God will do great things in your life. Notice point number three. Point number three this morning is don't overlook your family. Notice what the text says. He says, sons are a heritage from the Lord. Children are a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are sons born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their enemies in the gate. What Solomon is saying there is your family is important. Notice the words that he says. He says, first of all, children are a heritage. Literally in the Hebrew language there, it's their gifts. They are gifts from God. Notice he says they're a reward. Children aren't things that we're supposed to say, oh, gee whiz, I was given a kid. What am I supposed to do with it? We should relish in the fact because they're a reward from God. And it says, blessed is the man and woman whose lives are filled with children. Children are a beautiful thing. Now, I got to tell you, there are days in the Badal house, I don't want to believe that. It's tough. There are days, and I shared this with the first service, that I come home and my wife looks at me and she says, take them. They're yours. And I know many of you who know my wife say, that's not how Amanda is. Well, you put three boys in her life for all, all morning and all afternoon long, and you'll be surprised what Amanda's voice will turn into. It's tough. But one thing we need to remember about children is that we're not to overlook them. We are to invest in them. And he says, Solomon does, this wise man, he likens them to arrows. Now, we don't talk about arrows that much anymore because uh, we're not using them as weapons anymore. But there's a great metaphor there and a great picture that is given. If we want, as archers, for our arrows to go in the right way, there are four things that need to be done. Likewise, if we want our kids to head in the right direction, there are four things that we need to do that are like arrows. Number one, arrows and children must be straightened out. They must be straightened out. Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up the child in the way that they should go, and when they grow older, they will not depart from it. Now, understand this. We use that Bible verse, and we think that it comes from the book of promises. It doesn't. It comes from the book of 
Proverbs. Proverbs are truisms, which means that they are good sayings. And so what God is saying is, do your job, raise up your children in the direction that they should go, and, and what will usually be the case is that they will not depart from it. That's not always the case, and that's why we've got to give our kids to God. But we train them. Now, why do we need to train them up? Because children come out crooked. Did you know that? They come out crooked. The Bible says that in our mother's wombs, we were sinful. And what that means is you didn't have to teach your kid no. You didn't have to teach your kid selfishness. They just learned that on their own, right? They learned that because we're all sinners. And the world revolves around us. And so our job is to teach them that the world doesn't revolve around them. That the world isn't only for them, but it's to minister and to reach out to others. And the job of the parents is to do that. Now notice there's a second thing, and that is that children need to be sharpened. Kids, just like adults, have rough edges. They have weaknesses. And for an arrow to be used, the archer would have to sand down and sharpen the tip of the arrow so that it would be able to pierce whatever it's being pointed at, whether it's a target or... uh, Uh, not to be graphic, but the the flesh of another uh, person on the battlefront. And the job of a parent is to make sure that we sharpen our children. This means discipline. The Bible says that folly is found in the heart of a child, but that the rod of discipline will leave it, will, 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 will send it off far away. I'm butchering the verse, but it's getting late for me. And in that, discipline needs to take place. Now, I'm not going to get so political in this that I'm going to tell you how you are to discipline. That's the job of the parent. But let me tell you something. Discipline needs to be done, first of all, in an atmosphere of love, and it's done to raise the child up so that they grow from it. The Bible says that we are to sharpen one another as iron sharpens iron. So understand this. When you discipline your child, you should be learning as well. I will tell you, in the eight and a half years that I've been a parent— I have learned so much more about my God and my own disobedience as I've disciplined my own children. And when you're disciplining your kids, if you're not learning something from it, be careful because that's not discipline. You're just, you're just whacking the kid or you're just sending them to inevitable times of time out. It's not growing anything. But when you sit that child down and you say, here's the reason why discipline is necessary and here's why we are doing these things, that child will be able to grow and so will you through that process. The next thing for an arrow to be right is it needs to be set in the right direction. If I want an arrow to fly that way, then I can't make sure that I'm walking this way and pointing this way. If I want the arrow to go that way, then I need to shoot it in that direction. It needs to be launched in that way. And some of us as parents are saying, it's important to walk with God. It's important. And you, you bring your kids to VBS because you say, hey, religion is important and Jesus is important, but that's the only week that you do anything and the child sees you going this way all the time and pursuing the things of this world. And you're saying, but I'm hoping the kid's going to end up that way. It doesn't work that way. If we want our children to be set in the right direction, to honor God in everything that they do, then we need to be heading in that direction. And we need to show them how to launch themselves in that direction as they go. The Bible says in Proverbs, again, Solomon says that in all our ways, we need to acknowledge God. And the only way your child's going to learn that is if in all your ways, mom and dad, that you're acknowledging God. They won't learn that from the world. They'll only learn that through you, their parents. 
Make sure you're acknowledging God. And finally, children like arrows need to be shot off. There's a time, and some of our parents of teenagers are saying it's not coming soon enough that we release them. The Bible says back in that passage in Genesis that we are told that a man will leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They'll become a family of their own. And there will be a day, and it comes, and I'm learning it comes so quickly, there will be a day where I will, with my wife, launch our boys off. And that's a terrifying time because we launch them off and we hope we've done the good job that we have, but this is where faith comes in, where we've been faithful to what God has called us to. Then we go and we sit to God and we say, God, we're giving them back to you. We're giving them back to you so that they can live their lives and so you can work through them. And it's then that we release them into this world to be the people that we have raised them to be. Psalm 127 is a passage that speaks of the vanity of us thinking we can do it without God. I hope and pray that you didn't just bring your children to VBS so they could learn how to live life with Jesus, but that today you would learn this morning that living life without God, living life without a relationship with Jesus Christ is vanities among vanities. Solomon says it's like chasing after the wind. And if there's anything that we as a church would want you to know is that your life can be different because of Jesus Christ. And I hope and pray that you would hear from me, not a preacher's voice, but as another human being saying, without Jesus, I would fail. And I need Jesus every day as a parent. I need Jesus every day as a pastor. I need Jesus every day as a business person. I need Jesus every day. Because Jesus said, without him, we could do nothing. And so wherever you're at today, before you leave this place, that you would quiet your heart and say, am I acknowledging Jesus in my life? Am I acknowledging God with my family, with my work, with my life? And our prayer would be that you wouldn't leave today without talking to someone, talking with myself or someone that you came with and saying, I want to know how I can better acknowledge God in my life so I can walk with him and talk with him. Because without him, the Bible makes it very clear the following statement, unless God is there to bless, our lives would be a mess. And I've learned that to be true in my life. And I give that to you as a humble consideration for you this morning. Again, thank you for allowing us to be a part of your kids' lives. We're so thankful for what they learned. And we look forward now as I pray. They're going to come back and they're going to share that with us. So let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Psalm 127. And Lord, I pray today that we would recognize and know that unless you're in it, Lord, we do this in vain. Father, I pray that we would understand that we need you in our lives. No matter how wise we are, no matter how powerful we think we are, no matter how great people say that we are, that we are truly nothing without you. You are the one who has given us our wisdom. You are the one who has given us our means to work and our means to have a family. And so, Lord, I pray that we would acknowledge this morning in one voice that we need you, that we need you in our life. As the old Christian hymn says, we need you every hour or we would fail. And so, Lord, I pray for the person that's maybe come to church for the very first time, who's never really thought of spiritual things, who's trying to live life on their own. And, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts this morning, 
that they would see you inviting them into their life. And that you would come, and just as you have with so many here and so many across the world, that they would open their hearts to Jesus Christ, who is there to love, who's there to direct and to lead and to guide, so that we may be led to eternal life and a life in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the kids that teach us so much about you and who you are and their excitement and their joy of singing your praises. Let us be the same. In Christ's name we pray, amen.